Y'all can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Buck Anderson. I'm kind of an Anderson campus guy, so they've got me over here for just a few hours. My paper's run out. I'll have to go back. But I work in the area of uh, leadership development and also work with our operations team. And it's my privilege to be with you this morning. I'm particularly excited about our topic, uh, the sun, as we're calling it, as we continue our theological series this summer. I must admit, it is a bit of a daunting topic to have your way. I remember when the email came and I was assigned the sun, I did gulp a couple of times because 45 minutes or 40 minutes is not an easy task to uh, have come your way. But I look forward to it because I want us, frankly, to be a little overwhelmed. Uh, I certainly was in, in my preparation. Uh, as we take a look at the fancy word, obviously, is the, is the doctrine of Christology. As we take a look at the person and, and work of Jesus Christ, uh, we're going to see him from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, we're going to see him in maybe places that we didn't know of. And, and, and as I was preparing, I found myself sort of camping out in, in one of these three little phases or stages, Uh, something that I might not have thought of much before or was brand new to me. I kind of logged that in my awareness category. Hmm, I didn't know that. I'm going to study that some more. You know, I've heard of that. I'm going to add one more little uh, brick to to the pile there, learning a bit more, becoming more aware. And then I saw that thing I was becoming aware of actually had a great deal to do with the unfolding plan of God and I'm a part of the unfolding plan of God. So I began to see the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of me, the doctrine of us, sort of converge, and I began to appreciate it. I began to see the wondrous power and immense abilities of God weaving the story of the Bible in and through and around his Son. For Jesus is, is in fact, he's he's the darling of the Trinity, man. He's the point man of the trio, for sure. And the Word of God is best understood through a proper understanding of Him. So I love kind of becoming aware of stuff and then appreciating it. And the more I thought about things, the more I appreciated God's immense plan for me that intersected my life with the person of Christ, it moves to praise. It moves to worship. It moves to adoration. Every Christmas we sing the song, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Him. I set you free to sing that song all year long. It's a great song because the concept of adoring or adoration is a wonderful, fresh way to think about the concept of application of praise and honor. And that's where we're going today. For some of you, especially some things maybe that we're going to talk about early, it may kind of go over in that awareness bucket. Stick it in there. That's great. Go home, search the Scriptures, see if these things are so. Begin to complete and round out your understanding of God. If we're seeing some things that you've looked at before and need to move on to that next level of appreciation, so be it. But our goal is to move us toward adoration, toward praise and worship. We're going to look at the, we're going to round up the usual suspects, as they say. We'll certainly take a look at at the scenes that we're most familiar with in the life of Christ, his birth, his his baptism, his sermon, his upper room discount, the cross, and of course, the resurrection. We can sort of capture Jesus from Christmas to Easter, right? We sort of got the story. And, and those are key Lego pieces, if you will, in the unfolding plan of God around the person of Christ. They're just not all of the Lego pieces. They're just not all 
of the elements of the story of Jesus Christ found in the Word of God. And that's really our goal today, is to take a more robust look at what Life Magazine years ago said, who was he? If I had been the editor on that cover, I would have changed the was to is, because we're going to see that he's the ever-present I am, the ever-present eternal one. But it's still a great question. And that's really the purpose of our time in this series, the summer of going through theology. It can easily move us from uh, an awareness all the way to adoration as we see the wonder of God. If there is a, a verse or a, two or three that I needed to quickly sort of cliff notes version capture the person of Christ, it would be here from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, the days in which we're living, he has spoken to us in or through the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Beautiful literature in Hebrews 1 there, beautifully capturing the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to spend a little bit more time, though, going back all the way to Genesis, actually, and follow, not through every book, but through a good stream of consciousness, if you will, throughout the Word of God, taking a look at the full presentation of the Son seen in the Word of God. We'll spend a little time on our tour taking a, 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 a camera shot or two of the pre-incarnate Christ. He existed before his birth to Mary. What was he up to? The Old Testament prophecies that, that foreshadow the Son. You see the intricacy of the Word of God and the amazing ability of God to bring about that which he has foretold. The amazing mystery of the incarnation that God becomes a man. How can that be? And if he's a man, what kind of human is he? And is he fully human? Is he fully God? And what is this combination of the humanity and deity of Christ that we call the hypostatic union? We'll talk about that briefly. We're probably the most familiar with number seven, the earthly life of ministry of the ministry of Christ. That's which is revealed in the Gospels and then commented on in the epistles. What's his job description got for what's next? What's the uh, present work of the the Son after he leaves planet Earth in Acts chapter 1? What's he up to now? And what's in the future? And the amazing thing about all nine of these, and then the last one we'll ask about, where is the Son in my life? And have I seen him in his fullness Have I beheld his glory, the one who dwelt among us, in a comprehensive way? That's our goal this morning, is to move from that place of awareness to appreciation and then adoration all around the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we take a look at our first little stop here on the tour. It's going to be the the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, We'll see him showing up in a variety of different places. Let's just make sure... We, we have our lingo down because, I don't know, if you were, if you were like me, I, I came to faith later in life. I was 29 years old, and I thought Jesus came into existence on Christmas Day. I thought he was born of a virgin. I understood that, and he was on the scene almost like a play that had been unfolding from Genesis. Here's an actor that comes in about three-fourths of the way through the book, if you will. 
And he's sort of the, the hero of everything that was talked about in the Old Testament, but I just thought he was a new, a new actor, a new one on the scene. We're going to see actually that that's not correct. We're going to become aware of the fact that Christ existed before, and he was in flesh uh, before, his, before his time of being uh, in flesh, or as, as we would know, the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. He was active. He was alive. And he was existing. He has always existed. The theologians call it pre-existence. They'll call it eternality. Just to make sure, pre-existence, Christ existed before his birth. His eternality, Christ existed always. He is the eternal present tense. He'll work his whole name, both in Hebrew and in Greek, around Yahweh or ego in me, the idea of the eternal I am, the eternal present being. John 1 captures this so beautifully. If you're ever in a pinch and really need a, a quick overview of the person of Jesus Christ, you can always go to John 1, you can always go to Colossians 1, you can always go to Hebrews 1. So if you ever get cornered on some tough Jesus questions, just run home to mama, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, it will serve you well. I'm just going to lift a few verses out of each of those chapters, but all of those chapters are really beautiful pictures, snapshots of the Lord Jesus. John begins his gospel very similarly to the way Moses began Genesis, does he not? In the beginning was the Word. The Word is one of the names of Christ, Lagos in Greek. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, so he is the agency involved or the agent of creation. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John 1, 1 through 3. Paul will write to the Colossians what I call that first chapter, the resume of Jesus Christ. It's just bullet point after bullet point after bullet point of all the things that Jesus is. This is just one of them. In fact, it's the first half of a verse. He is before all things. Amen. He is before all things. That's a big deal, right? He's been around. God speaking through the author of the Hebrews says, but, oh, but, but of the Son, the Father says, Thy throne, O God, calls him God, but notice, is forever and ever. The eternal second person, the pre-incarnate Christ, has existed before and he has always existed. His own words attest to that in John 8. He's speaking to the Jews and he, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus speaking, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews, understandably, are a little confused over that. They therefore said to him, Wait a minute, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Now let's make sure we get our chronology down, right? Jesus is probably speaking here in 31, maybe 32 AD. Abram was born in Ur of the Chaldees in 2166 B.C. Some 2,200 years prior, Jesus is saying, I was there. So he, they, they, they had a right to be confused because he was saying something that was outside their category. Notice what he says at the end. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That is a statement of preexistence. That is a statement of eternality. That is a statement of deity. That is a statement that will get you killed, by the way, because this statement and other statements is those that will so incense the Pharisees that it will lead to the crucifixion, all, of course, under the predetermined plan of God. So this preexistent 
Christ, the preexistent Son, was busy too. That which he created, he sustained. So imagine our planet, our solar system, our Milky Way, our galaxy, and oh, well, let's go about a billion more as a garden, okay? That's his garden. So he creates it, but he also cares for it. He sustains it. He's put things into place, proper physic, physical uh, limitations of, of tiltations of earth and, and rotations of, of, of uh, planets around the sun and things of that nature. And what we see is that he will sustain his creation. He'll also show up in this very interesting character known as the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. It's not Michael. It's not Gabriel. It's God. And we'll see that in a few cases that we look at. And he'll show up uh, in in other appearances. The fancy word is theophany. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I want you to see the activity of the eternal second person, the son, before he was baby Jesus, okay? So he's actively creating and sustaining that which he created, Colossians 1. There it is again. For by him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. There's a force, that's a, there's a power that he emanates that keeps things intact. It keeps things from going awry. Author of Hebrews, we saw it earlier, but let's go back and see it again. He made the world and upholds all things by the word of his power. The creator sustains active, everyday involvement in our solar system, in our planet, and then watch it. This immense grandeur God also cares for me. And that's the beauty of the Son. And if you can hold both of those things in place, his immense grandeur as well as the intimate grace that he provides and brings our way, you'll have a better chance of understanding him more fully. I love the character, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. He shows up about 12 or 13 times in the Old Testament, and it's in particular phrased accordingly, the angel of the Lord. He's not Michael. He's not Gabriel. Remember the word angel, both Malak in the Hebrew or or, or angel in Greek, just means messenger, one who gives a message. But this one is divine. This one is God. This one is the pre-incarnate son seen in the Old Testament. Best example might be the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, I paraphrased it for us a bit. Notice he shows up, and the particular phrase appears almost every time he shows up, the angel of the Lord. appears to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush, okay? So Moses is trucking along, there's a bush on fire, and all of a sudden the bush starts to speak. And we see from verses 4 and 5 that the author will say, it's not the angel of the Lord calling, it's God calling. And so by the law of substitution, we can begin to see what he's saying, that the angel of the Lord is in the bush. Someone's calling from the midst of the bush, who's now called God in verses 4 and 5, and says, by the way, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. Angels like Michael and Gabriel don't do that. Angels never received worship. They never acted as if they were deity. They always move the audience to the person of God. This angel is saying you're in the presence of something holy and special. Act like it. And in case there is no doubt, he clears it up in verse 6. Moses hears these words coming from the bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. The angel of the Lord, God, is the God of Abraham. The pre-incarnate Christ, active throughout the Old Testament, 
active in his role in our lives. Now, this old fancy word theophany comes along in in theological lingo, and we're doing a theological study, so I thought I'd just drop it in. Easy to figure it out. A lot of our words actually come from Greek words. Theos meaning God, phaneo meaning to appear, okay? So other times where God appears in the Old Testament, it's what's known as a theophany. And these are the ones that I really enjoy. I think it was another theophany that, that entertained Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 18. Remember that conversation between Abraham and what will later be God? It's another appearance of God in which they're bartering over how many people must there be in Sodom that are righteous that will prevent me from bringing about judgment. And they go from 50, 40, 30, couldn't find 10, right? That's the, that's, that's the appearance of God showing up. Remember when Jacob got a little wrestling match? I think it's with the angel of the Lord, another appearance of God in the Old Testament. That's why he changed the name of the place to Peniel, face of El, Peniel, the face of Elohim. He wrestled with God. God wrestled with Jacob to teach him a lesson. And lastly, if you're familiar with Daniel's many wild visions and appearances, one of them are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in this flame, this furnace rather, that the flame has been enhanced to seven times its normal temperature. And they're placed in that flame. It's so hot that the guys that placed them in the flame die. And the three men, the Hebrews, stand fine and sure and strong. And almost out of the wings comes the fourth man. Seen there is God also. Another appearance of God. What can we learn from this is that God wants to be among his people. Isaiah will capture that later. We'll see it with the concept of Emmanuel, right? God with us. That's the wonder, that's the majesty of biblical Christianity is that we'll see that God becomes a man because he wants to hang out with his creatures. He wants to relate to that which he loves. One of my favorite sections of Scripture is Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I'm just hoping that there are electives in heaven. Okay, so we go to heaven, and maybe there's some free time one afternoon, and you can, like going to the movies, you can select. I'd like to go to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. I want to go to the garden, and I want to see Adam formed, and I want to see Eve fashioned, and I want to see what was going on. I want to know what really happened, okay? spin the metaphor another way to look at it. What if there were security cameras in the trees of the Garden of Eden there in Genesis 2? And like, you know, you guys got your deer stands and you want to see who comes out in the middle of the night and capture it on, on film. What if we were to capture on film the formation of Adam, the fashioning of Eve? I think what you would see is you would see a being prior to Adam's formation standing there in a body reaching out, grabbing dirt, and building a man, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. That man became a living soul. And if the still shot of the picture was for you to see, there would be two beings, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, Adam. So named for the ground is called Adama in Hebrew. He is called Adam. Later in that same second chapter of Genesis, to enhance Adam's understanding that he needs a partner, a helpmate. He, he, God, he, Christ, puts Adam to sleep, forms the, the first surgery, I guess, in the Scripture, takes from his side 
better than rib, because the, the word elsewhere is used to describe the sides of things, and fashions out of that material a woman. And if you were to step back from that scene, I think you would see a physical being that you could feel, touch, see, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, Adam formed, and his wife Eve. Three would be in the scene. To cap, to cap it in the next chapter, when they were trying to hide from the Lord after the sin, they got afraid because they heard the sound of him walking in the cool of the day. It's a term that's given to people with bodies, giving to people that can walk, that are there. And that's the appearance, I believe, of the pre-incarnate Christ as a theophany. Paul will later capture this beautifully in Colossians 1. Again, he is the image of the invisible God. If we're trying to get a picture, it's the word icon, by the way, if we're trying to get a picture of God, Jesus. Jesus will help you understand who he is. And throughout the word of God, God has given us these images of himself, primarily in the angel of the Lord, also, obviously, in other theophanies. Also, also we've seen the predictive power of the Lord all focusing in and around the person of the Son. The Old Testament literally has hundreds of literal direct prophecies as well as foreshadows of the Christ, of the second person. The probability of just eight of those prophecies being fulfilled in any one random person is one in 10 to the 28th power. That's a big number, okay? It's statistically zero. It's statistically improbable. But if you need to put odds on it, it's one out of 10 to the 28th power. The prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, far exceed that of eight. But let's just take eight. Here's some doozies right here. We see the fulfillment in the New Testament, but they first showed up in the Old. Micah says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah says he's going to be born from a virgin. Moses in Genesis 9 says he's going to be from the tribe of Judah. Second Samuel says he's going to be from the lineage of David as a king. He's going to be incarnate in, in Isaiah 9. He's going to die by crucifixion, prophesied in Psalm 22. Guess what Jesus quoted from on the cross? Psalm 22. Dogs have surrounded me. They cast lots for my clothes. The Jews took Psalm 22, 23, and 24 together. He throws a lasso around all of those and reminds his audience while he's on the cross, you're seeing predictive prophecy coming true right before your eyes. His death was being an atonement for sin, a kippur, a covering for sin, Isaiah 53. His resurrection predicted in Psalm 16. The magnificence of the Word of God intricately revolving itself around the person of Jesus Christ so that our lives might converge with Him moves me from a state of awareness to that of appreciation to that of adoration. God became a man, the doctrine of the incarnation. No other religion in the history of the world has ever come up with anything so ridiculous as this. That God, fully God, also takes on full humanity. Everywhere else you see God out there, he's big, don't, don't mess with the peons. Biblical Christianity presents the exact opposite. Emmanuel, God with us, he becomes a man. The fancy lingo is the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son, takes to himself an additional nature, humanity. He doesn't pull back some of his deity to make room for humanity. He remains fully God and then takes on a new identity that of 
humanity. And we'll see the reason for that theologically behind this person that we call the God-man. Notice Isaiah captured it beautifully. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. So he's telling us it's a male child, got it so far, will be given to us, and the government will rest on his soldiers. So, okay, this, this is a, a guy who's going to be king one day, and he's going to have a lot of responsibilities. Okay. His name will be Wonderful Counselor. I guess he's going to be smart. It kind of departs now, doesn't it? Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. You don't give terms like that. You don't give names like that to human kings. This is a son, a child, who is also God. The wonder of the incarnation. The wonder of the second person. Probably John captures it best. After we read verses 1, 2, and 3 just earlier, in the beginning was the Word. He goes on in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And King James used to put it this way, and tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. He lived among us. He knows what life on earth is like. And that's one of the mysteries and wonders of the immense grandeur of God also becoming intimately gracious to us. The infinite dealing with the finite. The great touching out and reaching the small. That's the power and wonder of the person of Christ as seen in the Scripture. This incarnation, by the way, is a lasting state for our Lord. We saw him in appearances in the Old Testament, but he could kind of go and come and wasn't always sort of locked in to being the angel of the Lord. He wasn't always locked in to being uh, the, the one who talked with Abraham. He's locked in now, even further showing his eternal love, his eternal commitment to human beings. The incarnation is a lasting state for our Lord. It began at his conception and birth and continues in his resurrection body today. So he's an everyday living memorial, like an audiovisual of what he has done for us. I have become a man. I want you to imagine if you had invented ants, okay? You're the inventor of ants. First of all, congratulations. That's a pretty big deal. I'd put that on my resume. And you invent ants to have fellowship, enjoyment, show off a little of your creative ability, display your love toward your creature, hope that your creature loves you back. And all of a sudden, things are going fine. And a grasshopper shows up and starts talking to the ants and says, hey, well, this guy's got you running around in tunnels, pulling grass stalks, talking with little sticks coming out of your head. Let, let's go over here. We can do some other stuff. I got a better deal for you. And God sees that. He's, or the, you, the creator, sees that. He says, no, no, you guys are supposed to stay over here. And so he sends some other animals that we've also created. He sends a rabbit, maybe a snake, and a mole, and says, go talk to the ants and tell them, hey, stay within your bounds. That's the best thing for you. It's not trying to limit you. I'm trying to give you the best thing that you can be and enhance our relationship. But the ants insist on going their own way. And you could stand over the ant bed and kind of, hey, 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 that's enough of that. Stop that. You could, you know, pour some water down there and clog up their their tunnels or stuff, but maybe, maybe the most effective way for you to communicate to the creature that you have created, the ants, is to become an ant. You still maintain all that you've got. You just become an ant. And yes, you have to limit yourself to hanging around in tunnels and pulling grass stalks and talking with sticks coming out of your head, but it might be the most powerful way to demonstrate 
your ability to reveal your communication to them and also to demonstrate your love. That's a ridiculous illustration, obviously, of incarnation. People can't really invent ants, but we, we can understand this idea of how much more, obviously, God becoming a man. We sort of think we're something, right? We're, we're not even ants in that illustration, but we have to come up with something. The idea of God becoming a man is preposterous until we see the reason. Why? So he can reveal himself to us. He is so powerful in a desire to teach, reveal, love, he will go to the ends of the world, ends of the earth, to demonstrate that love, to reveal, his, uh, to reveal God to us, his love for us, to provide an example for our lives, to be an effective sin sacrifice, to fulfill the Davidic covenant that required a human king uh, to, to be in the lineage of David, and also to be a sympathetic high priest. We'll end our time together looking at Hebrews chapter 4, this beautiful, powerful, wondrous God, also our priest to whom we can go and find mercy and grace. The humanity of Christ, obviously, then is the first component of the incarnation. To be God-man, you've got to be fully God and fully man. Let's take a look at the humanity of the Son first. It's pretty straightforward. We get this mainly, obviously, from what we see in the Gospels. But sometimes it's wise to just step back and remember his birth, human birth. It was attended by some angels. It was attended by some shepherds, I grant you. But it was a normal birth in the way humans come into the being. He had a true body, flesh and blood. He thirsted. He ate. He grew tired. He bled. His body died. Normal development. Luke says he was growing in stature and development among people. He had a human soul, human spirit. He was anguished. Ask God, is there another way we could do this? But nonetheless, nevertheless, thy will, but not mine. Normal human characteristics. Weeping. Probably some laughter. A few, few jokes appear to be in the scripture where he talks about some unusual things. Just a normal guy except he was God. But he had to be a real man first in order to represent and die for humanity. The first guy got us into trouble. Paul says in, Hebrew, in, in Romans chapter 5 that in Adam all died. Adam was credited, if you will, with casting all of the human race into sin. That's the reason that we're born in judgment and have to be born again. And we have to be born in alliance with what he will later call the second Adam. That's the person of Christ. Christ is the do-over. But he has to be really human or he can't represent us. You see, the Old Testament talked about things representing the other thing, but they weren't of that same species. For human beings, it required a human being to represent the species. But here was the problem. He had to be sinless. Even the sacrificial system taught you, don't bring lambs that are all tore up. Don't bring lambs that are deformed. Get your best bull, your best goat, your best turtle dove. Sacrifice that to the Lord. Symbolic imagery of that which is unstained. The ultimate unstained one, the Lord Jesus, is not only real man, but he's also sinless, so the sacrifice could be appropriate. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's the wonder of the God-man and the reason that God 
puts those two together. The deity of Christ, is we're actually probably pretty familiar with that. Certainly a lot of the New Testament literature will, will reveal that. Let's make sure we're on solid ground here. Uh, where we can get off is, is making the mistake of, of what's called diminished deity. So he is undiminished deity. He's not God-light. He's not like many God. He's, lot, he's not like just, or just a good one of us. He's fully God and fully man in one being forever. He is deity, and because of his deity, his death now has infinite value for those whom he died. As a result, I think, because God lives in the realm of the infinite, his payment on the cross is infinite. It reconciles all things that have been missing the mark, this idea of sin, to himself. And thus the idea of the deity of Christ being that which brings this infinite value that we see at the cross, he's able to offer his gospel to all. It is free. It is open for all because the barrier has been removed. Now it's just for us, up to us to believe. He receives worship, by the way. He never reflects worship. When these names come his way, in fact, many of them he'll use describing himself. He doesn't like blush and say, oh, you know, not really. It's who he is. He's God. He's the Lord. He's the Son of God, probably seen as the figure better. He's the personification of God. He is the Christos or the Masiach, the Christ or the Messiah. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Revelation will say he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lofty lingo, eh? Lofty terminology to describe God. He, of course, is the Lord. Thomas got it. Took him a while. Finally, Jesus says, come here. Feel my sides. Look at my hands. Those are the same scars that happened on the cross just a few days ago. And Thomas's response is beautiful, my Lord and my God. Jesus got in a little trouble for this next one in John 5, 18. This will lead ultimately to his crucifixion. He, Jesus, was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Pharisees didn't like that at all. They had somebody they had to deal with now because they were, this person claiming to be equal to God it was over them in that case, and that could happen. So that's one of the main reasons he was later crucified. We look for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this humanity and deity comes together in this thing that theologians call the hypostatic union. It's a couple of Greek words, hupo meaning under, stame or isteme meaning to stand. And it's this imagery of some solid thing under you holding you up. And the idea is that deity and humanity are solidly and firmly united in the person of Jesus Christ forever. It's sure. It's steady. I used to work with an old guy from Alabama, and we were builders. And he would say, after we'd put up a wall, he says, that ain't going anywhere. Okay? He ain't going anywhere. He's together. Human God, the God-man. And that's the idea of the hypostatic union. This idea that the two natures of Christ are inseparably united. He's not a little bit God and a little bit man. He's not a little bit of, of, of mixture like Kool-Aid. He's fully God, fully man, together in one being. No mixture, no loss. He remains God forever. He remains forever the God-man. 
fully God, fully man. Two distinct natures in one person forever. That's the baby in the manger. That's the cross Christ. That's the resurrection Christ. That's the one that we say in Jesus' name when we pray. The fullness, the grandeur of the Lord Jesus from Genesis to Revelation is our goal today. And it's so wonderfully seen in this idea of a God becoming a man. Philippians 2, another great section to go to. Notice, he existed in the form of God. He emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, God and man. But notice, the point of the passage is about humility. Being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, being obedient, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The idea of the kenosis of Christ or the emptying of himself so that the hypostatic union of God and man could be formed is actually an act of amazing humility. Would you become an ant? God became a man for the likes of you and me. We love John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Have you ever used the phrase only begotten son anywhere other than in church? Okay. Let's, let's take a look and see what that word means. It's just two little Greek words, mono and genes. We get our word you know, mono, like one. And gene, we get our word gene from that word. He's a one gene or the unique. He's the unique son of God. And that's why all of our illustrations break down. There is no parallel in history other than the unique being, the person of Christ. So we try to come up with stuff to somehow get us in the ballpark But I've learned to sort of just let him be. He's unique. He is immense. He is grand. And the wonder is that that immense grand being also invades my life, invades your life, wants to be a part of us. Colossians 2 maybe captures it best. And in him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. You want to know what God is like? The Bible says, take a look at Jesus. He's fully God, fully man, and that's all there is about God right there. Just what you know about Christ will get you to what you need to know about God. We're probably most familiar with his earthly life. I'll go through it quickly just to make sure. Take a slightly different spin on it just so we can see it perhaps not with those pictures that I showed earlier, but maybe some different characteristics. First, his words. I don't know if some of you may have grown up on a red-letter King James Bible, right? And you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you were to count all the words in all four of those Gospels, add them up, half of them would be Jesus' words. Half of them would be red letter. Okay? He is clearly the, the main focal point of the Gospels. If that was a play, that would have been a lot of lines to learn. Overwhelmingly, the words of Christ reveal that he is the center point, And it reveals his authority, which Matthew captures nicely at the end of the Sermon on the Mount wherein Matthew says that he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. His works also attest to who he is, this God-man. 35 separate miracle accounts, plus some just throw in mass healings. It's just like, oh yeah, and by the way, he he healed hundreds here or thousands there. Doesn't even go into details. But 35 specific, complete, organic healings or miracles over nature, miracles of supply, miracles over demons, or miracles over physical maladies, indicate this wonderful person who has the ability to bring about these works. 
The plot thickens a bit as the story unfolds when the story of Christ that began so powerfully, so wonderfully, is rejected. We saw why. He claimed himself to be God. Pharisees were okay if he was just like a little prophet, wanted to say some things and kind of get the guys going back to church and stuff. But now he's claiming to be equal with God. They couldn't have that. And so as we see in Matthew chapter 12, they turn on him and plot to kill him. And his kingdom, which was offered, had now been rejected. It was held in abeyance. It's sort of, it's sort of in limbo for a while. It'll be offered again. But it was offered early in the ministry of Christ, rejected, and now being held in abeyance so that it could be offered again. That is what comes with the second coming of Christ, the future that awaits. Not only was he his rejected, his rejection leads to death. And if you're watching the story unfold, it's not going as you thought it would. But we see it as, author, as the author of the book of Acts will say, according to the predetermined plan of God, all this works out. His death has meaning. It has great value to you. His death was substitutionary. It was on behalf of others. The whole Old Testament works around the Mosaic law, right? Full of all these sacrifices, bulls and blood and guts and all this stuff going on in the Old Testament. And John comes along and beautifully captures that imagery, sort of throws a lasso around all the Old Testament and says, all that sacrifice being described in the Old Testament, it all is fulfilled perfectly in my cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God. Not the Passover lamb that had to do every year, but the ultimate lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world forever. His death was substitutionary. His death was also um, it was justifying. It's able to make us right with God. The essence of the Christian gospel is that we are, made, we are born not right with God and need to get right with God. Not right, biblically, is just a term that we call sin, but it means we fall short or don't meet the standard. That's the essence of the gospel. Jesus' death on the cross and then his resurrection allows us to be made right with God. And that's the wonder and the freeness of God's gift to all of us. If you're here today and have have never thought about becoming a Christian or understanding the things of the gospel, it's laid out for us so beautifully just in the person of Christ. That Christ died for our sins because our sins needed dying for and rose from the dead. And those that believe in that transaction might be made right or are made right with God and can enjoy this peace that Romans 5 talks about. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He also purchased us. How we live matters to the Lord. Redemptive is the fancy word. It's no different than going to the store and buying some milk and eggs, paying a price, for a product that you want. We're not free, y'all. We are slaves. We are owned by the one who bought us. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We're free to serve him. That's the wonder of the New Testament gospel. But this idea that I can go anywhere I want and do that is outside the confines of what the scriptures talk about. We've been bought with a price. Then the story unfolds in another twist. This one whose life began so beautifully and so unceremoniously rejected and then crucified, put into a tomb, is raised from the dead. 
We should have seen it coming, by the way. If we'd known our scriptures, we knew the Old Testament prophesied the resurrection of Messiah. It was foretold by the Old Testament prophets. Jesus tried to work it in almost every conversation he could muster up. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. Then I'm going to rise from the dead. And every time the disciple says, ah, come on now, we've we got to come up with a different plan than that. That's not, going to, that's not working for me. And it's like they had blinders on. And it took the power of God resurrecting his son and the evidence left behind. Thousands and thousands of people have come to Christ simply by looking at the evidence laid out in the Gospels about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Foretold, you've got an empty tomb, you've got wrappings, you've got post-resurrection appearances by the Lord and the other 500 or so that were resurrected with him. Post-resurrection appearances transformed disciples. They were emboldened by that one significant act and it never left them. We start meeting on Sundays because of it. Jesus and the boys met on Saturdays all throughout the gospel. That's when Jews today meet. That's the Sabbath. Sunday now to commemorate the resurrection, we'll meet on a whole new day because it's that important for us to understand and it's preached by his disciples. The power and wonder of the resurrection is most beautifully seen in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul sort of gives away the secret. You know, if you want to come after Christianity, if you want to defeat Christianity, Paul's saying, I'll show you how to do it. You prove that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. But if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then everything we're saying is true. But if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then what in the world are we doing? Why would we come here and listen to a guy talk on Sunday morning? Our faith would be in vain. It's empty. It's not placed in anything. It's worthless because it merits us nothing. And we're still in our sins. He just tells the secret. It's almost treasonous. Come after us. If you want to upset the apple cart of Christianity, you prove that Christ was not raised from the dead. Biblically, it's overwhelmingly. Historically, the evidence is overwhelming that Christ was raised from the dead. Resurrection of Christ determines the validity of Christianity. It indicates the Father's acceptance of the Son's work and was a forerunner for the sending of the Spirit. Then he ascends into heaven, and on his way out, the one standing there says he's going to come back in just the same way. So he's always instructive. Even as he leaves, he says, I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to come back in the same way. So his ascension ends his ministry. It ends his humiliation or his veiled glory. He is the first resurrected human, if you will, in the heavens. And lastly, we see that the Holy Spirit is now able to be sent. What's he up to now? This goes kind of quickly. What's he doing right now for us in and among us? He's building his church. He promised he would in Matthew 16. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. Paul will use the imagery of forming the body. Same thing. I'm building the church. Elsewhere, we'll see that he's praying for us. This immense, grand God, eternal second person, is also standing before the Father, advocating, interceding for us. As the accuser of the brethren comes against us before the Father, we see the Son interceding for us. He's producing fruit in believers. He's, he, he's a vine grower. He wants grapes. And he provides that energy, provides that juice, if you will. He says, be, be in me, abide in me, and I'll produce fruit in and through you. And he's a builder. He built a planet. He built a solar system. He built a billion more. 
And he's working on a construction project right now. Notice John 14 says, I go in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will also come and receive you to myself. Why? So that where I am, you may be also. That's the wonder of the second person. The son, wherever he is, he wants us with him. The grand pre-incarnate Christ, the one prophesied throughout the Old Testament, the baby born in the manger, God Almighty wants to be with us. And he's asking, do we want to be with him? What's he going to be doing in the future? What's, his, what's the last section of his job description have? The future work of the son? He's going to return. He promised he would. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to reward all people, including unbelievers, who will be recompensed, according to Revelation chapter 20, according to their unbelief and their deeds. He's going to rule the world, first in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and then through the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21 and 22. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and its righteousness he judges and wages war. His name is called the Word of God, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the magnificent Son of God. Where is he in my life, is the last question. As we take a look at the brief little time we spend in these cross-sections of the person of the Son from Genesis to Revelation, as we move from awareness to appreciation to adoration, Outside this place, think about where he is in your life. I love this verse from John 1. He, the word came, became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This morning we've had the privilege of beholding the wonder of the second person, the son. Oh, come let us adore him. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we've had to think about these things. I pray that you might make us different as a result of this. Help us grow in our awareness and our appreciation and our adoration of you. Thank you for each one here, Lord. We're so grateful that we have this sympathetic high priest that, to whom we can go and, and, and to the throne of grace and receive mercy from the eternal God of the universe. As the old boys used to say, Lord, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. I pray we never get over that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Next week, uh, Jacob will be here. We'll look at the Holy Spirit.